This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. Welcome back to Baselayer. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer. Wow, do we have a show today. Avichil Garg joins us from Electric Capital. For those that don't know Avichil, he has had a very uh, long experience in technology. He was at Google. He was at Facebook. He did a few startups called Spool and a few others. Very successful, brilliant guy. And so we talked about a lot of different things. I got to know Avichil about a year ago um, before we hosted our first event called FO256. And one of the nicest people and also one of the smartest people I've gotten to meet in this space. And so we had a long conversation and you're really going to enjoy it. And so we talked about things like blockchain, not Bitcoin. And he had a really interesting experience. He talked about uh, about a year or so ago, he met with what he would call old school industrialists. And they talked about their interests in blockchain and smart contracts. And through that conversation, he kind of realized how they actually had an appreciation for you know, moving things into the cloud, not necessarily crypto, but it was actually just leveraging things in the cloud and optimizing their business because they had not really used technology for two or three decades. And so it was an interesting kind of look because this this notion of blockchain, not Bitcoin, has been prevalent for the last few years with investors and high net worth and, and institutional investors. And so that was a really interesting conversation. We talked about his firm, Electric Capital, and their interest in what he called the primordial soup of disruption. I love that phrase. Um, and how they're looking at things where other kind of folks, other investors might say, or technologists might dismiss something. They say, well, actually, everyone's dismissing it. Let's take a look at it. And so I love that contrarian view. We also talked about what programmable money is. That's one of their thesis. And uh, he kind of defines what that is. We talked about what Bitcoin is good at, um, moving around, subdividing it, um, custody and seizure resistance, how that's all similar to properties of store value. We talked about the importance of privacy and really interesting note on how he said how the most wealthy may want the privacy components of things like Monero, which is uh, an investment they made, and how we don't need to have everyone in the world kind of pile into privacy coins, but if you have 10%, uh, of the world that own you know, a lot of money, their interest is in privacy, and that actually might really create a lot of uh, value in a big market. We also talked about their developer report, and if you haven't checked that out, you really need to. They spent about a year compiling a lot of data, and it was really trying to kind of understand where the value is accruing. Um, they found that where the smart people go, and the developers and the engineers, that's usually where over time value accrues. And so they did a lot of work on that. You got to check it out and listen to Avil to talk about it today. And then kind of the last things we talked about are how entrepreneurs are looking outside of commerce and social and how he's noticing in his neck of the woods that a lot of entrepreneurs are looking into crypto uh, because they don't want to compete against people like Zuckerberg and Bezos. They want to build things that they can build large companies into and they can uh, obviously get a lot of market cap into. And so it's an interesting way to think about things, and he's seeing a lot of people focus and building in crypto. Lastly, we talked about the the findings of the Bitwise report, another report that you all should be checking out if you haven't already, about how 95% of the crypto volumes have been kind of what they call faked. Um, And then lastly, really interesting how he was talking about some of the things he's reading about 
and how cultural tra- traditions are passed throughout history. And he's spending a lot of time reading about that, and I thought that was super interesting. You're going to love this. This is one of uh, a great, great, great conversation that we had. Um, Abachal is also going to be with us again for FO256 Volume 2 on April 10th. So if you're around, check him out. And remember, nothing on Base Layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. On the flip side, you're going to hear from our sponsor, and then you're going to hear the conversation with Avichal. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios. On the trading front, siloed liquidity, opaque execution, and questionable compliance deter entry. On the management front, spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution. These infrastructure and usability problems, which have been long solved in traditional finance, still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve this problem. To find out more about Lumina, please go to lumina.app. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Avichal with Electric Capital on with us. How are you doing, Avichal? Good, man. How are you? I'm great. I got to meet Avichal about six months ago. We hosted a little event in New York called FO256, and we had a bunch of family offices there. We were working to educate and to motivate them into crypto assets, and Avichal was an important part of that. And so I'm glad that we're able to get back in touch and get back uh, in line and see what you guys are up to. Uh, Electric has been up to some really amazing things. You guys just published an awesome article, uh, a big research paper, and had a lot of people talking about it. Um, But for the listeners here, uh, I wanted to give them some time to get to know you. Um, You've had an impressive career coming from Google and then to Facebook and some other things in between. So if you could entertain us all, give us a little bit of a background about you and about what you've done. And on Baselayer, what we like to do is, again, not necessarily focus on the when Bitcoin, but the why. Why did you decide to change things up and go full time into this wacky world of crypto? All right. Great intro. Good Good to talk. Uh, it's been, has it really only been six months? I feel like I met you, I don't know, maybe it's crypto time. It feels like it was years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think crypto time is basically, you just speed it up. But like you, I, I know Avichal obviously talks a lot. We talk a bunch on, on Twitter, but I see that you also have a tendency to 2X things on your podcasts and your Audible books and things like that. Oh yeah, so 100%. It, maybe, maybe we're living in 2X time. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably right. Um so I guess to answer your question, uh, my back, uh, high-level background. So uh, yeah, I was at Google. I worked on search ranking and ads ranking. I have a machine learning AI background. And then I uh, started my first company, which was machine learning plus education. And the idea was to make education much more efficient by making it personalized. And uh, we sold that company in 2010, started another company, which was essentially a mobile infrastructure company. Uh, if you kind of rewind to 2010, 2011, uh, the mobile ecosystem was really nascent. And one of the big problems was moving media around between your devices. And people were trying to get Flash to work on a phone. And, and all the media companies had these really bizarre business models. You know, like you could 
watch Hulu on your laptop, but if you tried to watch Hulu on your phone, literally sitting on the same couch with the same Wi-Fi connection, uh, Hulu would charge you eight bucks a month. And so it's just sort of a weird time in the history of technology and devices and mobile and media. And so we built a bunch of really awesome technology around crawling and, and mobile caching and moving media around in a file file format agnostic ways. I still uh, can't. I still, I, I still can't get my Wall Street Journal to do that for some reason. I use, you know, I'll have it on my phone and then I'll have it on my laptop, and it doesn't. It, it asks me to, you know, resubmit and to sit to re kind of re-register and like. So maybe, maybe not everyone. <laughs> maybe, maybe more people need your technology. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, you know, it's pretty surprising. Probably about the company was called Spool, S P O O L, and um, probably about once a week. I, I wish Spool still existed. You know, you have like a flaky internet connection on a plane or. Like we did a bunch of caching stuff, or, or uh, you know, you you really want to watch things at three x speed, and the content provider that you're listening to doesn't have that in their player. There's like a bunch of little stuff that we did that made the experience way way better. So um, anyway, so we sold that company to Facebook, uh, where I was for uh, almost five years, um, and uh, for for a while, kind of baked that technology in um, to Facebook, and and worked on the crawling infrastructure there. And then uh, spent the bulk of my time working on the local product group uh, um, and had a fantastic time and was very, very fortunate to be a part of uh, Facebook um, right around the IPO and, and until end of 2016. Um, and uh, then left and you know, my co-founder from my previous startup and I weren't, weren't 100% sure what we were going to do, um, but we'd been into crypto uh, years ago. We actually, when we were doing Spool, kind of one of the things we were really good at was running... Uh, a bunch of virtual machines in the cloud. We were very, very good at essentially um, a software layer on top of a bunch of machines, a bunch of servers. And so we actually, we'd, we'd sort of come across the Bitcoin white paper and we bought some Bitcoin. That was just interesting from a distributed systems perspective. Um, and we actually kicked around just doing a bunch of Bitcoin mining because our, our core competency in some in some sense was just running servers in the cloud. And so um, we, we kicked that around and we basically said, you know what, this Bitcoin thing is probably, yeah, it's probably not going to be real. It's, it's just too early. It's, it, this can't, this probably won't work. Uh, and it, this was like 20, 2012, 2011, 2012. Um, and, uh, and this was when you could still be competitive. Like, you know, the ASIC revolution hadn't really happened. Um, and so, um, we said, ah, it's too early. This, this probably won't happen. And so, uh, we kind of, you know, tagged around as hobbyists for a while and my co-founder uh, Curtis was was running Monero nodes you know a couple of years ago and we were just having fun with it and then when we left and, and we had some more bandwidth because uh, we didn't have day jobs anymore we were trying to decide what to do we, we organically found ourselves like right at the end of 2016 early 2017 back in crypto just out of interest um, it kind of like one of the recurring themes um, in, in our careers has been wherever technology allows you to do something that you just couldn't do before we sort of get our interest peaked you know like the, if i look at kind of my investment portfolio uh, as an angel investor it's things like supersonic planes and self-driving cars four and six years ago respectively or genomics and so on um and crypto very much fits that bill we, we sort of as engineers come at it from the perspective of oh technology lets you do a thing that you just couldn't do before but i i think the other thing is kind of really qualitatively the community around crypto reminded us of the early internet um and it was the closest to that feeling that we'd had probably 15 or 20 years, like since we were kids, where there's this sense of nobody really knew the answers to a lot of really important questions, and we were all kind of figuring it out together. Um, and so you could go into a chat room, you could go into Telegram, or you go into Twitter, and, and there's a handle, and you're talking to somebody 
you don't really know. I mean, they might be 18 years old and, and a genius, or, or they might be 58 years old and, and they've been thinking about cryptography for the last 30 or 40 years. And, and there's just really no sense of um, experts in some sense. Um, and now that, that kind of rawness drew us back in. Um, and then the community, you know, it reminded us of, you know, in the early days, you have sort of academics and anarchists uh, and, you know, uh, young people and and sort of crypto utopians who are very similar to technology utopians from the 90s and so there's there's all that that community of people just felt to us uh like the beginnings it's almost like a primordial soup for disruption you know we, we kind of like look at the fact that the technology lets you do a bunch of stuff you couldn't do before and then the community that's around the technology and, and we said you know what this this might this might be real and so for all of 2017 we were uh, essentially deep in the ecosystem, going to conferences, reading white papers, making investments personally. So we're angel investors in a number of well-known projects, uh, both on the equity side and, and on the token side. Um, and then by the end of 2017, a lot of the VCs here in Silicon Valley said, you know what, crypto is just different than what we do. Um, it, you know, everything from custody is, is weird and hard and challenging to like, I don't really understand the technology. And so uh, some of the VCs here approached us and said, hey, if you, if you would ever be interested in doing something um, formal and not just uh, managing your own money, but but doing this for other people. Um, please do let us know because we'd be interested and, and we really trust you guys and think you're good at this. And so let us know if you ever wanted to do something um, more formal in crypto. And so a lot of our first investors were actually other investors. They were they were uh, technology investors and VCs who realized that crypto is just a different thing. Uh, and and to really understand it, you have to go pretty deep, and, and it's a full time job. And so that's how we got off the ground about a year ago. We went back to all those general partners at all the VC firms and said, yeah, we're going to do this. This is something we are spending all of our time doing anyway. It makes a lot of sense to formalize it. And uh, if we could have a team and we could sort of uh, have some resources to really help the, the entrepreneurs and the projects that we work with, um, we think that, that would actually be really good for the community. And we think we're pretty good at this. And it's honestly, it's just a lot of fun. And so uh, we're going to do this. And so that's how we got off the ground about a year ago. So I want to dig in a little bit because your background is in more centralized systems. Am I correct or not? Um, yes and no. I mean, um, so centralized companies, certainly things like Google and you know, traditional software startups here in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, behind the scenes, you have actually, you know, like if you look at a Google data center or uh, the infrastructure at Google, um, you know, GFS, Google file system, or, or any of these sort of services that Google runs, they're actually massively distributed systems internally, of course, very different in, in sort of a non-adversarial environment. Um, but I had some exposure to distributed systems and um, and, and Curtis, my co-founder, um, has a very, very deep background, undergrad and grad school um, in distributed systems and computer science. And so um, we understand distributed systems. I mean, distributed companies and, and distributed projects in this in the way that our sort of crypto native is its own universe, certainly. So because there's this, I've had to personally, you know, I, I consider myself a decentralist to the point where I've seen the fallacies and I've seen a lot of liabilities with centralized systems. I've said this many times before, but if you look at the amount of hacks that we've had, even in the last five years with JP Morgan and with Yahoo, there's hundreds of millions of people that have been hacked and their data is just floating around in the dark net. And so, you know, I, I'm curious because you, you've been, you've programmed and you've coded and you've built in that world. But at the same time, you know, there's this notion in crypto is that, you know, decentralize everything. And I, I've come to the point where things like JP Morgan coin and Facebook coin and some of the private chains, you know, that we're starting to see right now, 
I'm starting to say, okay, well, maybe and LVMH, the 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 parent company that owns things like, you know, Dom Perignon, for God's sakes, um, is just going to do. They've worked with Consensus and Microsoft Azure to create a a private blockchain to authenticate their products. And so I've I've had to maybe take a personal step back and say, you know what, maybe private blockchains are not such a bad thing. But, you know, from your perspective, you know, from, you know, working with those systems before to the notion of, you know, kind of decentralizing everything, you know, on the other side of the spectrum that many people think that we can get to. Yeah. Do you think that do you think we can get there or do you think it's going to be kind of a slow progress? Uh, it's a really good question. There's a lot to unpack there. So I guess kind of two things, I two or three things I think about. One is, you know, this notion of, of Bitcoin, not blockchain or blockchain, not Bitcoin. Sort of like, you know, to what degree does is the really interesting stuff public versus private chains? Um, the, the second is, you know, to what degree does the decentralization itself really matter? And um, and then the third thing you kind of touched on is kind of like JP Morgan and, and Facebook coin and, and those sorts of projects, um, which sit somewhere kind of in the middle on the spectrum. So um, on the first point around you know, Bitcoin, not blockchain or vice versa, I had this really interesting experience. So, so about a year ago, actually more than a year, ago, probably a year a year plus ago, um, I was uh, I was talking to some some like old school industrialist sorts of CEOs, people that run like chemical companies and shipping companies and just like really industrial um, kinds of operations. And I was talking to them, and and very surprisingly, they were super optimistic about blockchain technology and smart contracts and the like. And uh, they thought Bitcoin was just never going to be a thing. And so. I mean, they're very, very smart people. And so I spent a good 45 minutes to an hour talking to these folks and trying to get my head around why they thought this was so interesting. And they just were totally uninterested in, in Bitcoin. Um, and after about an hour, I realized that what they were really talking about, all of the benefits that they were really talking about, a lot of them are actually about just moving to the cloud. And so if you think about moving from on-prem to moving to the cloud, where you get all of these sort of um, you know, APIs, you get structured data, you get interfaces, anybody can participate in the servers and nobody really owns the, the spec. There's like all these nice properties, you know, composability, you get all these really great uh, properties to having moved to the cloud. And actually in a lot of these industries, they just never moved to the cloud. And so it is in fact very revolutionary for them um, because they're effectively moving into the cloud. And, and what really happened was some of the packaging around the technology makes sense for them. So for example, if you take something like shipping, um, in shipping, literally the way things work is if you're going to get a container from uh, Athens to Oakland, there's some rules that you agree to. You literally have a contract with, with the ship. And you say, you know, if you get it to Oakland by this date, you get this much money and here's the penalty if you miss this date and here's the bonus if you're early and yada, yada, right? So even conceptually, the idea of a contract that holds money like an escrow and can move it around to them, it's just like packaged in a way that makes sense. So I actually started with the, like, you know, the blockchain stuff is just uninteresting. It's just a database. Like, why would anybody care? And after talking to a bunch of these people in these industries, I've, I've come to realize that it is going to be revolutionary. But from a technologist perspective, it's not that interesting. But in terms of, like, net business impact, it, it actually could be pretty meaningful to a lot of industries that just never moved to the cloud. And now it's finally packaged in a way at a time that they're receptive to it. Um, so I think there will be some really interesting stuff there. Now, from... From the other end of the spectrum, the, the place where we focus and where we spend most of our time is not on that. We focus on the um, the public, truly distributed uh, chains, things like a Bitcoin or Monero, um, because from our worldview, that is the really truly novel stuff. That's the that's the thing that you look at and you you just 
are not sure how to evaluate. You're not sure if it'll work. You're not sure where the value will accrue. You're not sure how the organization actually functions. There are all of these open questions. Um, but all of those questions are why there might actually be tremendous value. Um, and it's really, really tricky and hard to reason about. And so kind of intellectually, um, we think that's that's where there might actually be something truly disruptive because it kind of looks like a lot of different things, but nobody really has a clean model for, for example, like what the what the value of it today should be. Um, and so we get really excited about that because we say this is the stuff where there are no incumbents. This is, like I said before, kind of the primordial soup for disruption. Um, and so from an area of interest perspective and potentially something that's way, way more disruptive, we think the truly open public stuff is is the really, really interesting stuff. But that's also the stuff that traditional incumbents will look at and say, you know what, that's silly. And and that's that's the recurring pattern. I mean, if you go back to uh, mobile, if you go back to social, if you go to esports, if you look at early internet, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the incumbents basically said, this is silly. There's no value here. Uh, the business model doesn't make sense, yada, yada, yada. It's all the same criticisms. But to us, those are all of those reasons that um, people are very, very critical of it are actually why we get excited because that, that sniffs like disruption to us. It sounds like you've probably read Master Switch. Um, I don't know if you have, but you know, obviously in, in Master Switch, the, he, it, Tim immediately starts talking about Western Union and Bell and about how Western Union said, oh, no one's going to be using this crazy phone thing. We're just, everyone's going to be, you know, using telegrams. And then all of a sudden, whoops, <laughs> uh, that didn't necessarily work out too well. And they, you know, wound up obviously getting, uh, they uh, had some some problems there. Um, yeah. But and, and I actually haven't, I actually haven't read that book, but I, I mean, I think this is very much the history of technology, right? Like the incumbents look at it and say, this is, this is worse than the widget we have today. Um, to do some job, and and it turns out the technology is actually going to be used for something totally different. Um, and it's the fact that that market doesn't exist that makes it so hard to to reason about what the value could be. Um, and so it requires a lot of first principles thinking and being on the ground and seeing these early signals um, that that I think I, I personally think a lot of early stage venture and early stage uh, technology investor types are actually very primed to see these more qualitative signals of what's happening on the ground, such as where are the developers spending all their time. Um, or, you know, what, what are the, who are the people in society that have the greatest friction to doing something? Um, for example, uh, people, people involved with drugs. Um, and that's actually an early indicator that, that, you know, they're willing to go through and try a new technology if, uh, if there's real value there, otherwise they're not going to waste their time. Right. So a lot of the things that turn other people off, we look at and we say, oh, those are actually really interesting qualitative signals that, that this might be disruptive. So I'd love to also now kind of pivot into what you guys are doing at Electric um, there's a few things there that I kind of want to pinpoint on, and your focus is on what you define as programmable money. So I'd love for you to define that, and then you also got you just released a massive report, uh, which I want to delve into because your findings there were super interesting. But but first, if you can talk about what programmable money is to you, and what does that mean, and how would you define it to someone who might not necessarily understand what you're talking about. Yeah, wow, there's a lot to unpack there too. Um, it's a great question. So the the way we think about this is um, kind of the, the process that we went through is we had this intuition something's happening here. And we said, okay, what's how do we actually reason about what's happening? Um, and the way we approached it was was kind of the way I think engineers tend to approach it, which has its own biases and faults. But we said, okay, what is the technology good at? Like, what are the properties of, of this technology? And you start enumerating, you know, take something like Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin actually good at? Um, 
well, it's it's easy to move these bits around the world really quickly. It's easy to subdivide a Bitcoin into very, very small chunks. Um, I actually have custody of it, um, which means that I can potentially have a brain wallet and and move uh, move this thing around without anybody knowing it. Um, and so it's seizure resistant because may, nobody may even know that I have it. And so you're, you start enumerating these properties and say, wow, actually a thing that's highly seizure resistant, um, relatively liquid, easy to transfer, easy to subdivide. You start enumerating all these properties and say, wow, that looks like actually a store of value. Uh, you know, if you, if you sort of lay that next to gold, it's like, wow, that actually has a lot of those same, same properties. And of course the volatility in price is one that uh, people will point to and say, well, it's not actually a store of value today. It's a perspective potential store of value, uh, which I think is fair. Um, but of course the question is, well, volatile relative to what? And, you know, two years ago we were talking about, uh, things like, well, it's, it's less volatile than the Bolivar. And people were like, yeah, but is it is anybody in Venezuela actually using this in that way? You know, you're technically right, but is, is practically speaking, is that actually hold? And it turns out it does now. If you look at local Bitcoin volume and volume in Venezuela on the ground, or this uh, great op-ed from a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times around the Venezuelan economist who moved all of his money into Bitcoin, and, and essentially that's how he feeds his family now. Um, and so people are actually using it that way, which I think is great on the ground early validation that people do, in fact, are in fact able to use this as a store of value. So we kind of approached it from the lens of what is what are the properties of the technology and uh, what is that? What are those sets of properties allow you to do? And, and we sort of said, wow, this actually feels like a store of value. And of course, that that was based uh, on us thinking through a bunch of this stuff. But also we pulled on a bunch of resources. I mean, these, these are thoughts and, and themes that have been in the ecosystem for some time. And so, we're, of course, we were informed by a lot of other great thinkers on this. And um, and so once we arrived at that conclusion, we said, OK, well, that's really interesting. Um, and that's potentially interesting if you just say, hey, this is a better digital gold or this is some form of millennial gold. But we think it gets even more interesting if you think of that uh, in the context of, of the broader ecosystem where stores of value get used. Uh, and if you think of it as a stack, uh, you know, today's store of value, like primarily if you look in our society, is, is the U.S. dollar. And uh, that's really predicated on our faith in the U.S. government. And on top of that, you have things like central banking, which can print the dollars. And on top of that, you have all of this amazing financial infrastructure, everything from banking to securities to derivatives to brokerages that give you sort of an end retail user uh, an interface into that. And we think that if you reinvent the bottom of that stack, uh, you know, if you have a new store of value and that store of value is actually programmable, it's just bits. And and uh, and code that can sort of interact with those bits, which are actually now money, then it's not so crazy to imagine that you move up the stack in time and actually start to replace everything else. Um, and so, 25 years from now, a lot of that infrastructure actually is just built on this new uh, this new store of value. And so, we can reimagine uh, what all those things look like because, in some abstract sense, the top of the stack, whether you're talking about a security or a derivative or an escrow or a will or a trust. A lot of those things, actually, if you if you just boil them down, they are money. There's some sort of often just cash flow statement uh, with a bunch of rules around who has access to the money and under what conditions, uh, which sniffs a lot like a smart contract wrapping some sort of digitally native store value. Um, and so we said, wow, if that were to happen in the next decade, if that first base layer were to happen over the next 20 to 30 years, you might actually replace the rest of the stack. And if that were to happen, you would start to touch parts of the economy that have just not been touched by the internet yet, right? Basically, the financial sector. Um, uh, and, and it could be as revolutionary as the internet, just given the sheer market size of what you're talking about when it comes to fintech. 
one of the areas that you touched on, um, and one of the, you know, I know one of the company, one of the projects, one of the, the coins that you guys have on your portfolio is Monero. So you talked about privacy, you talked about, obviously, also you have Monero in your portfolio. Um, are we at a point right now where you think society really, you know, has such a value on privacy? You know, every single day, 1.2 billion people go on Facebook. You know, yep. every day, billions of people go on Google and they search and they use Gmail and they use Maps. And as I've said before on the show and in public also, when it's free, you are the product. And so are we at a point or do you think we're going to get to a point in the next few years where privacy, you know, is going to have such a prevailing kind of, you know, effect on society where things like Monero and things like privacy and, you know, having synonymous ownership in, you know, vis-a-vis Bitcoin, is that going to really be, is that going to be the thing? It's, it's a good question. Uh, and I think there, the way we look at it is, um, Historically speaking, privacy has been one of these things that people who really understand technology care a lot about. And the average person just doesn't care that much about, uh, to your point. Um, now, of course, that may be changing. And that's certainly one reason and I think that some people say, hey, look, this time it's different. Uh, people, in fact, do care about their privacy a lot more than they used to. Um, and, and therefore, there may be a push for more private currencies uh, going forward here. Um, that may or may not happen. We're actually a little bit skeptical that that will happen. We think it's just a lot of friction for the average person to have to think about or deal with. And in practice, there's a lot of complexity there for people to try to manage. And so they probably um, won't want to do that. But if you if you look at it slightly differently, which is for the people who have the most money, so effectively a dollar-weighted view into the world rather than a number of users-weighted view into the world, we would posit that the people who have the most money actually are also the most likely to care about privacy. And so from a dollar-weighted perspective, you may not need uh, 500 million people to buy into the system. You you may only need 25 or 50 million people to buy into a highly private system. Um, And from a dollar-weighted perspective, that may still yield trillions of dollars of assets that move over. Um, So for example, it might be that um, if you are a financial planner of some sort uh, or a financial advisor of some sort, that you really understand this stuff and as an expert. And as you're making recommendations to people, you might say, hey, look, here's a system that is much, much more private. I would highly encourage you to use this sort of system. So there might be these sorts of dollar-weighted uh, points of leverage in the system that actually drive more dollars into a more private system. Um, and so even if the world doesn't move towards really caring on, on a person-by-person basis that much about privacy, I think there's an argument that from a dollar-weighted perspective, those might actually hold a lot of value in 10 years. So moving forward, as I mentioned before, as I alluded to, you guys did a massive developer report uh, where you looked at activity from January 2018 to February of this year. You fingerprinted 20,000 code repos and 16 million commits to create this report, and your findings have been talked about all over the place for the last few weeks, especially. Um Within the kind of executive summary, you highlight some really interesting findings. And so I want to, you know, kind of delve in here a little bit more. And I want you to talk to us a little bit more about the findings and the report, why you did the report first and foremost. But then you, you, you obviously talk about things like the number of developers working on public coins has doubled in the last few years. You know, while the market has capitulated, the public market has capitulated from $850 billion in market cap to about 144 ish today you know i've been saying this other people have been saying this 
the amount of talent that has been coming into this ecosystem has continued on. Um, so I'm really interested to find out, you know, talk more about that. And then, you know, other things that you sp you know spoke about, you know, Ethereum has the biggest developer team in crypto. And we're seeing some things happen with Ethereum uh, over the last few uh, weeks where they're switching from uh, proof of work to proof of stake. And that's going to take quite a long uh, period of time. There's about a two-year process where uh, with the Beacon chain and they're moving over. Um, so that's going to be pretty interesting. And then another thing that you talked about is that the Bitcoin developer ecosystem is very healthy after 10 years of launch. And so you're pretty close to Bitcoin. I'm curious to hear kind of what's happening in the world of Bitcoin. I personally, you know, there's a lot of people who are either very pro Bitcoin and either very pro Ethereum. And I think that's kind of silly. I think we can look at everything and we can enjoy that there are, you know, factors that Bitcoin, Ethereum, other protocols are doing that could be sizable and change society in a very good way. So would love to kind of hear why you did this report and then delve into some of those points that you found, uh, which I find really interesting. Yeah, so the, the, there's a short answer and a long answer on the why. Uh, the short answer is um, we, we think that this is the best early leading indicator of where value will accrue. Um, you know, we, we think about in the history of technology, wherever the developers spend a bunch of time, it's sort of it's reflexive in the sense that wherever a bunch of smart people spend their time, odds are there's going to be a lot of value created there. Uh, and so understanding where the smartest people are spending most of their time lets you understand where the value might actually be accruing over the coming years. And what's really great about um, engineers and, and builder types in general is they are often more motivated by intellectual curiosity, uh, underlying utility, um, the ability to build new and novel things that solve real problems that otherwise weren't solvable than they are by price. Um, and, and they might start off as hobbyists. Like Chris Dixon has this great thing, which is, you know, Whatever the whatever the engineers do on the weekends is what the average person will do, you know, uh, during the weekday in 20 years. Right? There's this sense that engineers and and developers and builder types are are on the sort of frontier of where the world will be, uh, and it just takes a while for that to to trickle out to everybody else. And so we very much subscribe to that philosophy. And so we said, okay. And and to your point, qualitatively, we're seeing that in Silicon Valley. You're just seeing this rush of talent move into crypto, um, and and actually very rationally. I, I Actually, don't think it was. Uh, I mean, some of it obviously was was driven by um, by the the price and the press cycle. But I think a lot of it is just really rational. You know, if you're a founder and you're looking about where to start a company in in what space, you look around and you say, well, if I do something in e-commerce, Amazon probably crushes me. If I do something in AI, how am I going to compete against Google? If I do something in in social networking, how do I possibly compete with the distribution and scale of Facebook, uh, which has WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook proper? Uh, and so you start running down the list and you say, wow, and do I really want to compete against Zuck and Bezos? Those are not really people that you want to compete against, right? Like a lot of people have tried and failed for the last 10 to 25 years. Uh, and then you look over to other industries and you say, wow, okay, over in that industry is a 30-year-old company that doesn't really understand the internet or technology. That sounds like a pretty great place to be. And so I think what you're really naturally seeing is uh, entrepreneurs looking outside, uh, outside those sort of narrow software bounds. And so this is where you're starting to see Companies like Affirm or Open Door uh, go into sort of fintech-related things or Plaid. Uh, you're starting to see people go into biotech and genomics and self-driving and all these other things that are happening. And, and so I think it's all very rational. So you take these two things where you know we believe that uh, where developers and engineers and, and product people and designers kind of spend their their time is really really important signal. And qualitatively on the ground, we are seeing that shift. 
And we said, is there a way for us to really understand this quantitatively? Can we really put some numbers behind this and try to quantify what's happening? Uh, and so that was sort of the the inspiration for how the dev report came out. And then one of the things that we do internally is um, our, our team looks a little bit more like a startup in terms of skill set than sort of a traditional VC firm. So we're all engineers and we, we write a lot of our own software. Um, and so we've been, we, and as I mentioned, when we were at Facebook and what we were doing before Facebook was building a bunch of crawlers. So it was actually pretty straightforward for us to build a system that could do this. And so we now have all of our own data pipelines and stuff set up to do this. And, and we sort of said, you know what, let's try to quantify what's happening here. Um, and then we decided to share it just in, ter in terms of, you know, trying to be helpful to the community to understand where there's real value. Because one of the other things that happens too, is if you believe that that statement is true, that where developers are spending their time is where value will accrue, then the inverse is also true. Right. If, if a bunch of people believe that there's a, a lot of value in something and that project is effectively dead, like nobody's working on it, nobody's advancing it. Um, that's that's sort of a red flag. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean the project doesn't have value today or won't have value in the future. But it is something to consider uh, if, if you are um, going to be deploying capital into uh, potentially projects that have very high market caps, but may not have that much underlying activity. Um, and so that was kind of the origin of it all. And so. You know, again, I would recommend anyone to go to Electric's website and pick up that report. You can download it. Um, the findings are really, really interesting, as I alluded to, to some, some of the, the points there of the health of some of the larger protocols like Ethereum and Bitcoin um, and how more engineers and developers are going into the space. Um, one of the areas, and I know that you're obviously very close to the company, and it's been a big topic of conversation over the last week or so, um, you know, with the Bitwise report, with 95% of the Bitcoin action basically being fake. Um, they did a bang up job on that report. Um, you know, I, I've congratulated everyone there about it because, you know, providing that kind of transparency is important. Um, but I'd love to kind of get a sense of, you know, being the fact that you've been, you know, within the ecosystem for a few years now, and we've seen this explosion, this almost Cambrian explosion of exchanges, you know, what do you think, do you think that we need to actually have kind of a, should I call it like a nuclear holocaust of these, ex of these exchanges and just, you know, focus on, you know, a few of them that are actually good. Um, what do you, you know, from the findings of the Bitwise report, what do you think, you know, we need to see in this ecosystem happen in the next year or so for to really get a lot of maturity and to get more people to take a look at it seriously? Yeah. So, so a couple of thoughts, um, you know, Bitwise, I think did a really, really fantastic job on this and full disclosure. I'm, I'm an angel investor. Um, but you know, even even if I weren't, I think the, the findings were just so fantastic. And the, the short version for people who haven't seen the findings is essentially 95% uh, of exchange volume looks to be fabricated. There are uh, about a dozen or so exchanges where if you look at the trading patterns on the exchanges, it looks as though that's real. It, it doesn't look fabricated. And so those exchanges appear to be uh, much more trustworthy and they're not engaging in sort of internal wash trading to inflate the numbers. Uh, and the reason these exchanges want to inflate their numbers is it's really a customer acquisition tactic. So if they appear to be 10x bigger than they actually are, then that that invites more liquidity. Uh, nobody wants to trade on an exchange where there's $1,000 of trading volume a day. Everybody wants to trade on an exchange that has millions or tens of millions of dollars worth of transaction volume per day, uh, exchange volume. And so the exchanges really have an incentive to, to sort of um, pretend that they're much bigger than they are. Um, now, the big takeaway, even if you sort of say, oh, wow, 95% of the, the volume may not be real, pretty fascinating is you still have uh, something around 
$300 million worth of trading volume, if I remember the number correctly, uh, per day, which is real. Uh, and the fraction of uh, that trading volume um, that's, that's changing hands every day starts to look like the gold market, um, you know, in terms of like the, the, the amount of transaction volume per day relative to the total market cap of, say, Bitcoin, um, starts to look a lot like the gold market. And the total transaction volume is actually bigger than things that already have ETFs today, like Palladium. Uh, so I thought the Bitwise team made a really compelling argument for, hey, look, let's let's call a spade a spade. Let's call out the transaction volume. But even given that, the characteristics on the good exchanges actually look really healthy, and it looks a lot like the gold market. And by the way, the real transaction volume that we can that we can look at and say this looks real is already bigger than things that have an ETF. So I thought their argument was was uh, was really really interesting and sound, and and actually moved the discussion forward considerably, in my opinion. In terms of what do we do about that now, um, you know, I think. Um, the first step was acknowledging that, that that it's an issue, and I think it's something that a lot of people in the industry had had quali qualitatively felt was was the case. Um, and I think Bitwise was was able to put some numbers behind it. And I think that's generally our approach. Was going back to the idea of the Dev report, that's kind of how we thought about that as well. Is it's one thing to say, "Hey, I kind of think this thing is true," and it's a different thing to put some numbers behind it and quantify it and have some analysis behind it. And I think by doing that, they really advanced the discussion because now the discussion is no longer, "Hey, I think." This volume may not be real. It's no, no, no. We can show you that the volume is real or is not real. Now, what do we do about it? Uh, and so, to your question, you know, what do we do about it? I think what we really have to do is um, there are a couple of points of of leverage in the system right now where everybody is sort of um, looking at this data. Uh, so things like TradingView or Coin Market Cap uh, or Open Market Cap, and I think um, those sort of entry points uh, or CoinGecko or or Masari, you know, all all of these sort of entry points, I think. If everybody sort of said, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna do the right thing, and we're just gonna start looking at good exchange volume, and we're gonna create incentive structures for uh, people to not exploit this, um, then I think we would start to move in the right direction, and I think we would we would um, start to clean that system up. And so, really, it comes down to the incentive structures. Is if we can start to kill off the incentive structures for the exchanges to lie, or if we can call out the ones who are lying and make them look bad. Um, then that's then that that I think will start to enforce good systems. And and by the way, I think the other side of it is true. If there are exchanges that are being honorable and doing the right thing. We should we should applaud that. We should say thank you, like good job, right? And and that goes for I think trading volume. I think that goes for security practices. I think that goes for customer support. Like for the folks who are doing a really good job, they actually do deserve more business. And so we should recognize when when um, some of these companies are actually doing doing the right thing. Um, so I think you know that transparency that that Bitwise put onto this issue. And quantifying it is actually a huge step forward. And now it's really a question of all the, the players in the system um, acknowledging it and, and sort of shining a light on it in the right ways. Um, like I think the um, the open market cap team, which basically said, oh, we'll just create a, a, a set of data, which is only trusted exchanges from Bitwise. And let's look at the volumes and let's look at the transaction volumes and let's look at um, you know what the market caps actually look like. All of that, I think shifting shifting what the data looks like really has a downstream huge impact in my opinion. Agreed. And uh, again, really congratulate the team over there. I know it was not a uh, easy process to compile all that data and to do all that analysis. And it's a report, again, another report that you all should be taking a look at, uh, aside from uh, Electric's uh, dev report, if you have not seen that yet. And so we're going to move to our uh, our next section, which we call Signal to Noise. It's a lightning round where we will bring up just a few of the news headlines that have happened recently, and we'll ask you very simply if you believe they are signal or noise. 
No, it's been a bit of a slow week. In tr- <laughs> oh no, I'm not. I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> it's been a bit of a slow week, and so whereas normally we might have five or six different topics to kind of bring up, it's 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 a little bit of a slow week, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's I don't think we need to have uh, headlines every single day that are changing crypto, even though most of us who follow the space closely know that every day it changes. So uh, there is a few different things here. And again, these are not gotcha questions, but you know, the first one is Bitmain lapsing their IPO. Do you think that's a signal or is that a noise? Um, I think it is. That's a good question. Um, I think there's, I, I do think there's a signal in there. Um, I think it's, you know, it's important when, when such an, a major player in an ecosystem undergoes a dramatic change. That's not to say that the change is good or bad necessarily, but it is newsworthy and, and interesting to understand and perhaps why um, the IPO lapse and kind of what's happening behind the scenes in the industry. And it, it might be good news, but it is meaningful news uh, and worth paying attention to. So Coinbase just announced that they're launching staking as a service for institutional investors and they're starting with Tezos. Is that signal or noise? I think it's signal. I, we're starting to see, and we've, we've talked about it uh, as an industry for some time now, is the evolution beyond proof of work. Um, and both from a custody perspective, which is really important for institutional dollars to come in, which is broadly useful for, for crypto, we're now starting to get to the beginnings of actually being able to test where proof of stake actually makes sense and where it doesn't and, and what the um, what the attack vectors are and where it starts to break. And so things like Tezos or Cosmos going live or um, some of the other custodians like Anchorage, I'm sure we'll we'll start to move in this direction um, of offering these kinds of services. So um, re- I think that's a good signal. And then the last one, and I'm actually really surprised I'm even bringing this one up. Tron is in the news. They just acquired Coinplay, and we've started to see this notion, this narrative of M&A happening within crypto. So Tron acquiring Coinplay, is that signal or noise? Uh, it's a little of both. Um, you know, it's it's signal in that I think uh, Tron is probably the best at making waves and making noise. And and um, I mean, I think their BitTorrent acquisition. I think some of the stuff that Justin Sun does around driving engagement um, on social media. They're clearly, clearly very talented at this set of things. Uh, most of the things that they do, I don't think have you know dramatic underlying value. I think they're they're sort of there's a lot of noise. But sort of, I think the signal in that noise is that the tactics that they use to execute on these things, I think a lot of other crypto projects could really learn from because the bias in so many other crypto projects is build it and they will come. It's, you know, it's a very sort of engineer's worldview. Um, and Tron takes the other extreme, which is, hey, we can, we know how to make noise. We know how to talk, talk about things. We know how to get in the press. We know how to drive community engagement. And I think there's a lot that other teams could learn from that. I would just suggest other projects not offering teslas that would be <laughs> that would be a bad thing that yeah um, well yeah there's there's a yeah that I would be a bad can't thing ar- can't argue with that <laughs> yeah so to wrap up one of the last things that we like to do with people that come on the show is there are inputs that we put into our body what we read and what we listen to while we're working and i know you're either looking for new opportunities, thinking about the world as an investment opportunity, obviously talking to other uh, investors and the such. And so you're probably traveling, you're probably all over the place. And so, you know, one of the things that I would like to know is, 
in terms of reading, if you obviously, hopefully you get some time to read some, some things that are not white papers, but if you've read anything over the last, maybe, you know, a few, maybe two months or so that has been really kind of poignant, that is something special, something that you've, you've picked up and you've learned something from, or something that you enjoyed a lot, what would that be? And then music. Um, music is an important part of my life. I ask everyone that comes on the show what they're listening to. I think it kind of highlights, you know, things uh, about a person's personality. Um, and so would love to know kind of what you're reading and then what you're listening to. Yeah. Um, so what am I reading? I'm kind of all over the place in terms of what I read. I mean, there's, um, a lot of what I've been thinking about recently is, um, going back to certain moments in history that feel somewhat like the present and and thinking about how people in those moments in time have thought about what's happening. So, for example, if, if you actually rewind a few years um, and go read some of Naval's blog posts, Naval Rebicon's blog posts, really, really interesting, insightful stuff in terms of what's happening in like politics and society. Um, and he was so spot on on some of these things uh, about how, for example, he has this great blog post where he talks about, um, you know, the, the sort of left-right division is not really the right, the, the, the actual division of society, there's sort of this like elites um, versus the common person sort of thing that's actually driving a lot of what's happening. And this was pressing it. I mean, this was what, six years ago that he was talking about this kind of stuff. So I, I think there's like, um, if you go back to a lot of what early crypto thinkers, uh, Nick Spazzo, you know, Naval, there's like people in the, in the ecosystem that you go back to early, early Bitcoin folks um, five, six years ago, and you say like, why, why did they think Bitcoin was interesting. Like, why did they call this correctly? And then you sort of peel back the layers a little bit. Um, I think some of those insights are really, really meaningful because um, they were extremely non-obvious then. And I think many of them continue to be non-obvious insights. Um, but the fact that those people called those things so early is, is fascinating. And then the other thing I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, um, and I think it's probably a side effect of, of um, uh, sort of family-related stuff and thinking about kids and um, my friends having children is uh, how cultural norms are passed between humans. And, and one of the most fascinating things, I think, is um, how religion as an organization, as a human organization, has managed to survive. And so I think um, Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity is, you know, 2,000-year-old religion. It's, like, really fascinating to think of the, the works that these, uh, these organizations have created that have allowed those organizations to persist for 2,000 years. I mean, I think it's just it's a phenomenal thing to see an, an organization or institution survive for that long. Um, and so I've actually been been spending a bunch of time um, with friends and and digging into the actual religious text just to like understand like how what are the best practices here and it's it's actually pretty fascinating to see how many of these things really um, like these disparate parts of humanity over the last two to four thousand years sort of converged on the same best practices. I have to say, you know, moving from traditional finance to crypto, the people in crypto are some of the most deep thinkers. I've ever encountered before. And I know you're, you know, we're not all just, you know, we're not all crypto. It's, it's, we, we have other things and part of us, but the people I've met in this ecosystem are some of the most deep thinkers. And they're actually not just thinking about what's happening today, but they're thinking about what kind of is happening before us and what could be happening to us in the future. And it, it's a special group of people. And, you know, I was listening to a podcast with Mark Andreessen the other day, and he was talking about kind of the scene. There's this notion of the scene where people, you know, there's this kind of coupling and grouping of people that are kind of working together 
um, either in culture and arts and you know things of that nature and technology. And so the scene that is in within crypto is really special. Obviously, there are some people that are not necessarily that special, but there are some people that are really special and that are thinking about things in such a unique way. So that was really cool. Um, and then also in terms of music, I don't know if you listen to music, but is there anything that you listen to while you're kind of traveling or are you reading? You know, what are you listening to that might be, uh, with, you know, what what's in your ears, you know, that's kind of circulating through your uh, through your brain? Yeah, I've uh, I do listen to music. I, I skew a little bit more um, kind of hip hop, rap, kind of in that orientation. Um, wow. As do I think a lot a lot of entrepreneurs actually. I think there is this sense of like, um, uh, you know, coming from from modest backgrounds to achieve you know uh, fame and success and so on in, in relatively short periods of time, which is you know, it's hard to do, uh, outside of technology. So I think there's a lot of technology entrepreneurs. I mean, you look at like Ben Horowitz, for example, he's like, yeah, I don't know how often he still writes, but his blog posts opened with hip hop and rap lyrics. Right. So I think there is this sort of, um, weird affinity that, that tech entrepreneurs have with, uh, with rappers and hip hop. Um, one of my, one of my favorite albums that I've been listening to, uh, recently is, uh, Beautiful Struggle by Talib Kweli. Uh, it's about 10, 10 this year, 14 years old at this point. I think it's like a 2005 album. Yeah. It's a really, really good one. That's a good pick. Um, yeah, I definitely have a more uh, when it goes to hip hop and it goes to that genre. I definitely prefer stuff from like twenty odd years ago, uh, like De La Soul and uh, you know Black Sheep and that that stuff. Um, yeah. Well, this was this was awesome. I really enjoyed this, and I will be seeing you soon. Avichal will be joining us again for FO two five six on April tenth here in New York. Really excited to have you back on that one. The last thing that we like to do for people are on, if uh, if anyone wants to try to find you after listening to this podcast, if you want to maybe there you want to point them to the website or you know social media or anything like that, feel free to do that. Yeah, I'm super easy. I'm just at Avichal A V I C H A L on Twitter, and you can find me there. There's not that not not that many people in the world with my name, so I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> that is correct. Um, well, this is Avital Charg at Electric. We really, I'm so happy that we had you on. This was a really great conversation going deep on a lot of different things. I hope to have you on again, but again, I'll be seeing you in a few weeks. And for yeah, those that are, those that are not coming, you should, and we'll try to make sure that if we, if you can't come, then we're going to live stream it and try to make sure that everyone can hear the great minds like Avital here. And so thank you for that. This was Base Layer, and we'll be seeing you soon. Take care guys. This layer, this layer, this layer.